Why don't we grab our Bibles? I'm sure there's some other things there that I need to underline, but of course there's the website, there's the mailing list, we have our social media pages, all of which are kept up to date. So jump on there at any stage if you want to know what's happening. What's happening right now is we're going to turn to Scriptures. We're going to incline our ears and our hearts, seeking not just to hear a sermon, but to know the will of the Lord, His purpose. Ask that through the power of His Spirit, He'd open our eyes to see Him and to know Him. That's always our desire. As Brendan began the service with, as John concludes his gospel, I'm writing these things that you would see who Jesus is and that in seeing you would believe and find life in His name. So let me pray along those veins. Father, we just pray for this time that we share this morning. We thank You for Your glorious grace. We pray that we'd have open eyes and open hearts to see You to know you, that we would fall more in love with the greatness of who you are and live our lives in response to the radical love that sets us free. Use your scriptures this morning to lead us and guide us. Do whatever you desire, we pray. But may it be for the glory of your great name, we pray. King Jesus, let your kingdom come and your will be done. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we began what I'm hoping will be a bit of a series last week, looking at Matthew 7 to set the scene. And this, of course, is the culmination of what many would consider to be the greatest sermon ever preached. And we're reading the words of Christ himself as he gathered together his followers, often called the Sermon on the Mount, because it was there that he began to preach and teach many different things. He went many different places, but he ended and concluded with this exhortation. It's certainly an encouragement, but also somewhat of a a warning. And he says to those who were around him, he said, those who hear, and not just hear, but, but do, put into action the words that I say, is like the man who builds on a firm foundation. Those who do not is like the man who builds on The sand, and as the winds and the rain and the storm comes, one stands and remains, that which is built on the rock, and one not only falls, but he says, great is its fall. And so we set the scene last week talking about, well, what is this foundation? Christ himself, he says, there's there's two places to build, two on a list of two, just two. And the difference is his Words. What are we building upon? And indeed, there's many different storms we could talk about as we journey through life. But specifically, we're talking about these storms that we've seen that continue to come against us in recent years that uh, we looked at the words of Carl Truman, who in a particular article he wrote in World Magazine last year, he talks about this swirling and the conflict and Literally being dueling ideas of reality is his word. Two completely different worldview ideals of what is real and what is not real. In fact, as he concludes that article, and this is still by way of review, he says, we've come to a point where it's not that we simply agree on tax policy, but we no longer agree on what it means to be human. In other words, there's greater, more fundamental, more foundational issues at play around us. And that's kind of our mission, is to delve into some of these particular aspects. And I found it interesting this past week, I always, uh, 
try to avoid preaching whatever the current issue, whatever it might be, is. And that's not because some of these issues are not important to cover, but I think if we continue to preach issues, first and foremost, we'll never preach anything but issues because there's always plenty of ammunition. But secondly, our focus is not to preach and proclaim issues, it's to preach Jesus, it's to look at his scriptures like that's our focus, that's our lens, that's our foundation. And so this is, I just want to clarify, this is not a sermon series that I planned in response to any of the issues around us. In fact, an ABC article this past week in the midst of the protests, in the midst of the politics that we've seen around us, it had this subtitle, it said, this week has tested the limits of tolerance, freedom, respects, and rights. It's an ABC article. So understand that these things are swirling around, but we plan to kind of delve into some of these issues well before that happened. And as the Lord would plan, my attempts to avoid the issues have been circumnavigated, and it's all we're seeing at the moment. But here's our mission in the midst of that. It's not to necessarily talk about the issues themselves. I want to dive into God's Word. I want, as we said last week, so we're talking about this establishing of foundations. It's, it's at times dirty work. It's physical labor. It's the hardest part of the process is establishing the foundations that are going to endure and remain. And there's no point in trying to establish a partial foundation. We don't dig two out of four foundations or leave out the joists, but only install the bearers. It is difficult work, but as we delve into these at times uncomfortable issues in the midst of the mire, we are aiming to discover a foundation that endures and remains. In the midst of some of the confusion to discover a clarity that things would come into focus, that we would see clearly, and not only see clearly for ourselves, But as we said last week, that we'd be propelled forth with somewhat of a clarion call in the midst of the noise that we see around us with the reality of that which is the only good news, a clarity, a peace, a promise that outlasts and outshines any other foundation. So that's the mission. It's a big and it's a broad mission. And intentionally, as we begin this journey I want to kind of start with the big picture and then delve in. I think so often we can pick some of these issues and they are important in and of themselves, but we jump right into whatever the the topical argument is without actually establishing and building and reinforcing any kind of foundation or framework within the issues themselves makes sense. So if you've got your Bibles, with any introduction, let's turn to John chapter 8. This is where I want to begin this morning and today and our mission, as I said. We'll we'll get there to the nitty-gritty. We'll get there to some of the the issues themselves. But starting from an intentionally big-picture vantage point, which is important for us to do. Now, we're going to read John chapter 8 and pick up the story from verse 53. But we'll see here, it's a, a wonderful portion of Scripture, wonderful passage. Jesus' ministry has begun. There's been... Great success has been miracles, crowds have been drawn, and most of this chapter revolves around a conversation, an interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus, and they're trying to bring accusations against him. They're trying to assert and understand who it is that Jesus is claiming to be. They're 
bringing up his parentage, his lineage. Hey, we're, we're, we're from this tribe and yeah, we're, we're, we're from a good background. You're from nowhere. And there's a wonderfully colourful account in there. He says, well, if you want to talk about parentage, let's talk about your father. Your father's the devil, one of Jesus' very kind pastoral moments. He's the father of lies and that's all you're espousing is lies, things that are false. And Jesus says, I'm here to set you free. I said, well, we don't need to be free. We're Abraham's children. We've always been free. Kind of a strange statement given that they lived under the oppression of Roman rule. Anyway, it all culminates in these verses that we're going to read as they continue to attack, but really trying to ascertain who it is that Jesus says he is and what it is that Jesus says he's come to do. Let's pick up the story of verse 30. So, are you, verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham? Are you claiming to be greater than him? And of course, in the mind of a good Jew, there is no one greater. I mean, that's a rhetorical question. There's no one greater than Abraham. So saying, are you trying to make yourself out to be greater than him? He was great, but he's died. And the prophets, well, they've died. So who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answers, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. But it's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar, like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And it was glad, remembering their perception, their understanding of who Abraham was, the father of the promise, the nation Israel. I say, he says, Abraham, he he desired to look in, he he rejoiced. He knew it wasn't just about him, that the promise always was for the nations to be blessed through him. He took his son up on the mountain. There was some understanding and recognition in that whole story that God himself was going to provide a savior. A he knew. He, he looked in. Standing this side, of course, he saw it in perfection. But he knew and he longed to see my day and rejoice. You can see things heating up here. Verse 57. So the Jews said to him, come on, you're not yet 50 years old and you're claiming to have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. So just in case you've missed the gravity of what it is that Jesus has been building towards, and this conclusion he's now reached and made clear, it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. They were ready to stone him. Why? Because he was claiming to be no other than the I am. Do you know Abraham? I am the God who called Abraham. I am the voice that spoke to Moses in the burning bush. I am the eternal pre-existent God. That's what Jesus is claiming. He's saying, do you want to talk about credentials? Is that where you want to go? Well, that's my authority. This is where I'm coming from. I am. And apart from me, there is... No other. And so that's where we begin. You see, this is why we listen. Not just because Jesus had an influence, which he did. Not just because he spawned a movement that's lasted and continues to grow even 
2,000 years later on, not just because there's more books that have been written, more songs that have been sung about him than any other person in human history. And in and of itself, all of those would be reasons to incline an ear and at least hear what it is that he has to say. But this is the reason that we've got to grab a hold of what it is that Christ is saying and proclaiming. This is where we begin, that he's not claiming to be just one perspective among many. I am just another voice that you can listen to. I am the one who can probably help you a little along the journey. I mean, there's a lot of good other advice and wisdom out there. Jesus is saying, I am the very point of your existence. This whole story from Abraham on, which of course he's starting it because he's speaking to Jewish believers. He's saying, this is all about me. I'm the one who called him. I set this thing in motion. Can't you see that it all hinges and revolves around me? I am the creator. I am the point of it all. And we're getting to how this fits into scenarios around us, but I want to labor this point just so that hopefully it distills and we can grab it. See, the most basic fact and the greatest ultimate reality is simply this. He is. He is who he is. Or we could say it more philosophically, that God absolutely is full stop. That's it. He is. That alone is the foundation of all other truths. And it's the building and it's the glue that holds it all together. There's nothing more basic. There's nothing more ultimate than the fact that God is. And hopefully most of us are saying, certainly who know the Lord, I say, yes, we, we, we understand that. We understand that. So if, if we do understand that, and if you don't, let me encourage you. Look into Jesus. Look into the reality of who he is. And it's my prayer that you'd come to that very revel- revelation yourself. But if he is the foundation, there's nothing more foundational than that, that everything that we know and understand to be true needs to come from that particular perspective. Nothing can be rightly known apart from his illumination, from relationship to him. He's the source, he's the goal, he's the definer of all beings and all things, the ultimate fulfillment and consumption of all truth and all knowledge and all existence. Now that's a very rudimentary snapshot of what Christ is proclaiming to be, the I am. Now, I want to take that and I want to contrast it with what I would call is probably the greatest mantra of the modern secularism worldview that we see around us. See, the difference and the tension here between that foundational truth, between that credential of the I am, is the cry of modern secularism, which is not the I am, capital I, but it is the I am lowercase i. And I think if we're to understand everything else, we need to understand the contrast and the conflict and the, dif- the difference that arises there. Because we could pick any issue, as we talked about the ABC, all, all these swirling things that continue to reach fever pitch, this fight for rights, for freedom, the cry for justice, equality, they flow from this, this tension, this conflict, this contrast between the I am, capital I, And the I am, 
the lowercase i, the, the I, the I am, I am. So let's explore that a little bit, and I know it's Sunday morning, but I'll give you some summaries as we go along. But I want us to explore the foundations of how we got here and why this is important in what we see around us. There's a very well-known philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor. He wrote what many would consider to be a landmark book published in 2007 called A Secular Age. Like, interestingly, as I looked at some of the articles, and I do get a variety of news sources, don't worry, but again, I was reading some of the ABC news reports on some of the events happening around us, and he was quoted on at least two or three different occasions, still very much held up as one of the scholars in this area who's worthy of reading. Now, in this particular book, Secular Age, 2007, he introduced this concept called the social, social imaginary. That was kind of his main defining theory in the midst of what he had to say. Now, the definition for that, grab this, he says, the social imaginary is the set of values, institutions, laws, and symbols through which people imagine their social whole. And he unpacks that on a very deep deep level, far more than we have time to get into this morning. But what he brings out as he develops this theory of the social imaginary is the shift that Western culture has undergone really over the last generation, although the roots and the foundations can be found much earlier on, switching from what he calls a mimetic worldview, and don't worry about the terms, but that literally means one in which the world around us possesses intrinsic meaning. That's all he's saying there. So we've moved from a view where there's something, there's some sort of absolute reality, there's some kind of intrinsic meaning beyond just my perspective and my view. We've moved from that to a poetic worldview, which is one in his own words, in which transcendent purpose collapses into any purpose I choose to create or decide for myself. Now, we'll look at his conclusions, but that's, that's the primary shift. He says there's the social imaginary, and we've moved from this, from creating our identity based on something out there, not even from a Christian worldview, but from every worldview, through to this view of now I create my meaning based on whatever is in here, a collapsing of any kind of intrinsic or transcendent purpose or meaning. Now, Carl Truman, he details not only the work of uh, Charles Taylor, but many of these other secularist philosophers who present this particular view or ideology. His conclusion is this, based on their research, and it's a longer quote, but bear with me. He says, the ancient Athenian was committed to the assembly, the medieval Christian to his church, the 20th century factory worker to his trade union and working man's club, but all of them found their purpose and well-being by being committed to something outside themselves. Now, commitment is first and foremost to the self and is inwardly directed. Thus, the order is reversed, which is the point I'm trying to illustrate and bring out here. So, outward institutions become, in effect, the servant of the individual and their sense of well-being. Institutions cease to be places for the formation of individuals that allow them to take their place in society, and instead they become platforms and disciplines where individuals are allowed to be their authentic selves. Now, I know that's weighty and you're probably thinking, goodness, a bit much for a Sunday morning, but the point is simply this. This indeed has become, if you think it through, the mantra of our secular modernity, not just at an intellectual level, 
but with a militant practicality that we can and we must be who we determine ourselves to be. Now, there's some such as Charles Taylor, and bear with me here, we're getting to a point, we're still awake and alive. Charles Taylor was one who draws conclusions from that environment. He's just profiling and putting words around what he believes he's seen over the last generation. And his conclusion is it's a wonderful thing. In fact, this is a summary of where he landed. He said, this kind of modernity built upon the elevation of the individual, which is what we've seen, and the rupture of tradition means that for the first time in history, a purely self-sufficient humanism is an option that accepts no goal beyond human flourishing. Lots of word. It sounds almost utopian, doesn't it? This is the, the secularist dream, is that maybe we can finally throw off the shackles of anything other than human flourishing. In other words, anything other than just my desires. If we can remove any other constraining force, then finally we'll have a modern secular age that's built on a foundation of nothing other than me and my desire, right? Moving from the I am to the I am. That's my foundation. That's, that's, that's it. That's what we need to seek and grab a hold of. And the problem is, although it sounds good, perhaps, to some of us in theory, the reality is, I would say, at best, unsatisfying. At worst, it's dangerous. Even as far back as... The famous writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a Russian philosopher and historian, and he was summarizing what he'd seen in the horrors of communism and the roots of what we see now really stretch back hundreds of years. But he looked back and he gave this famous quote that's often brought forward in current society. He, he said, as he offered as a summary for why the, the horrors of Soviet communism came to pass. This is this quote, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Men have lost sight of God. In fact, I would say not only is his quote as relevant for us to consider and to wrestle through, that not only in our current era and what we're just describing with Taylor and other of these modern philosophers, not only have we forgotten God, but this is nothing other than a very thinly veiled attempt to become God. That's really what we've always Desired. In fact, this elevation of selfhood, I would suggest, is nothing more than the old age deception we find since the dawn of creation. Adam and Eve in the garden. What was it they were offered in the presence of the I am? They said, if you partake of this, you can become like God. You will be able to determine for yourself what is good and evil. All we're seeing is this thinly veiled, relative, self-determined autonomy. If only we could have the right to decide for ourselves. It's a path. It'll lead us to happiness and fruitfulness. We'll have every desire satisfied. Human flourishing. Tragically, from the dawn of age, from the beginning of time, it's an old, age-old deception that's only ever produced death and destruction, and devastation. So I would suggest this utopian selfhood devoid of any transcendent purpose is at best unsatisfying and at worst 
dangerous. Let me explain that for a moment. I had a, a conversation a couple of years ago with a friend that kind of bought the first tenant home to me, and he was a, a good friend. We'd grown up in the church together for many years, and he'd, uh, he was very successful. He'd moved over overseas to the U.S. and regularly posted on his uh, Instagram, much to you know, my annoyance, a bit of jealousy there, the trips he'd have, the expensive yachts he'd spend time in, the celebrities that he'd rub shoulders with. And he was doing particularly well for himself. But in the midst of all that, he lost his faith. He clearly wandered away from the faith that we'd shared and grown up in. And it had been 10, probably a few more years, more than 12, 13 years since I'd last seen him and I heard he was in town. I thought, I'll look him up. I sent him a message and to my surprise, he said, hey, I'd love to catch up. So we did. We caught up for a beer. And I said, look, how, how are you going? I've seen these pictures on Instagram. Didn't mention, you know, some of the arising thoughts I'd had to deal with. But clearly things are going well. You're successful. You've got a great career. And I, how are you going? And it was interesting. He looked at me. He said, actually, I'm pretty miserable. I said, really? What's, you know, what's, what's been going on for you? And he said, well... I don't know if you'd heard, and obviously I had. He said, I don't know if you'd heard, but I grew up in the church and I really had a strong faith, but I've been deconstructing my faith, was his term and his word, a very popular one in some circles. I'm, I'm deconstructing what I believe in. I'm getting rid of it all, throwing it out. And, and let me say, there's nothing wrong with evaluating things. I think we always need in the midst of our faith to have a journey and a process for evaluating, for wrestling through issues, for working through stuff. But in his case, as so often is the case, he wasn't wrestling through. He was trying to replace his foundation with something else. And he said, you wouldn't believe it, but I took that foundation out and I decided I didn't believe that. And he said, I've been miserable ever since. In fact, I didn't know these things existed, but he said, I've been to a couple of conferences now and they work to try and help recovering Christians try and find a foundation to build their lives upon. In fact, his, his very word to me, he said, the thing that I thought would bring freedom, joy, and fulfillment had brought nothing but a purposeless, meaningless void. Now, that's not always the experience for everybody, but I would suggest that that sadly is the inevitable conclusion when we follow this kind of logic that somehow we can build a foundation, not upon the I am, but the I am. The, the I am, when somehow that becomes the cornerstone from which we decide to live our own lives. And it's simply for this reason. And I said this to him. Interestingly, he said he was with uh, his, his current partner. And he said, it's funny, she doesn't understand. She doesn't get where I'm coming from. I talked to her all about, like, I just I can't find any meaning. And, and she's like, well, what are you talking about? She came from a non-Christian point of view and had no framework in fact, he said to me after the conversation, he's like, you're the first person I feel like I've talked to about this who's actually kind of had some understanding of where I'm coming from. I disagreed with his conclusions, but at least we could agree and I could embrace and journey with him in the midst of his wrestling. But the problem is, is that from the moment we decide to remove from this foundation to this foundation, the foundation of me, we place the sole responsibility upon ourselves to decide what's right and wrong. From this place of judgment, we must divide, devise, create, and curate our purpose and our worth. And the tragedy, and I want us to catch this, if nothing else, the tragedy of this, because this is what we can call to people's attention. This is what we can bring to them in the light and the life of the gospel. 
The tragedy is that the very push for human autonomy, it narrows the the concepts of freedom, purpose, and meaning purely to something within us, which in turn then enslaves us to ourselves. It leads us in to bondage. And we're going to pick up these concepts of freedom, purpose, and meaning in coming weeks. But as a result, we've become, if you look at many of the statistics, the most addicted, the most unhappy, depressed, dissatisfied society, despite having everything in the natural. There's something missing. Now, not only is it dissatisfying, but the problem is, as I've said, if we follow this path as we are, this secular modernity, what inevitably ensues as we move to the supremacy of the self, with the individual being the sole determinant of what is good and right, rather than unifying us, it turns us against anything and everything that would stand against our fragile self-determined identity. That's why we get statues that are desecrated. That's why we get the tenets of history, not just learning from, but rewritten. We've got to rewrite. We've got to destroy. We've got to attack anything. We've got to uphold in law the sufficiency and the supremacy of selfhood. And the problem is this, is that history has shown that it is never enough. This kind of path is and always will be a Trojan horse. It's an unavoidable path towards empty disappointment and inevitable destruction. What starts out looking like a utopian dream becomes nothing more than a dystopian disaster. And I know you're thinking, well, this is all a bit morbid and depressing for a Sunday morning. But I'm trying to paint a picture of the reality of the context that we find around us. And fundamentally, so much of this reality comes from this tension between the I am and the I am. So let me finish simply with this, and the musicians can come up and get ready. The good news, because that's what we want. We want to finish with some good news. I want you to grab a hold of something. I want you to leave this place encouraged and lifted up. How are we going to do that? And as I said, my heart this morning and each and every morning is not for us to somehow delve down dirty in the issues and end up discouraged. I want us to delve down there in a way that helps us to somehow come through the mire and see Jesus and grab a hold of him with a greater passion and purpose in our lives than ever before, proclaiming to a world that desperately needs it the good news that's found in him. You see, the good news is this, is that the world is not left to its own devices. We're not a den of wild beasts where everyone just does what they please, where no one would call them to account. There's a law, there's a rule, there's a government over the human commonwealth. The race is not left to anarchy, but Jesus Christ is Lord and he's ruler and he's judge of all. And the further we look into the reality of who he is and his words that he's promised would be a firm foundation that we can build upon The further we anchor into this, we find there is external transcendent purpose. We find there is an unfailing compass to guide us. We find there is an everlasting fountain of joy that sustains us. He is the I am. That's where we want to camp, not in this place here. 
of the I am, a world that holds up us. I don't know about you, but maybe it's just the Christian heritage and upbringing. I think I, I, I don't want to be held up as the answer to all my own questions. Not when he is the answer, not when I've encountered him. I don't want to build a foundation based on the certainty of me, my capacity to create and curate my own destiny. That's exhausting just thinking about it. Especially when he's given an everlasting, enduring foundation, caught up in the glorious grace and wonder and majesty of his eternal purposes. See, in a, in a world that's searching for answers, he is the answer. In a world that's caught up in anxiety, he is peace that passes all understanding. In a world of confusion, he is clarity. In a world that's lost, he is our shepherd. In a world that's uncertain, he is our certainty. In a world that's thirsting for meaning, he's the living water that satisfies. In a world that is in need of salvation, praise God that he is our Savior. Would you close your eyes? I just want to ask us, which foundation is it that we will choose? Which foundation? Is it the solid rock of the I am, capital I, or is it the sinking sand of the I am? Looks okay for a while, it appeals for a time to be my own God, to decide for myself, but inevitably it falls. And when it does, great is its fall. The good news for us is not only can we this morning choose to plant our feet upon that solid rock, but we can be a voice calling in the darkness, a light shining, a truth proclaiming there is a solid rock. Come with us, come and stand, come and place your feet upon the firm foundation that will never fail you. His name is Jesus. So, Father, I want to pray for us this morning, Lord. I pray that in the midst of perhaps a, a message and some truths that are, are uncomfortable, that are confronting, in the midst of issues and narratives and confusion that increasingly swirls around us, I pray even now, just peel back the curtain, break through the distractions, and help us to see you clear. Lord, establish us upon that truth of the I am. Help us to look away from the I am, from the self, from the tendency that each of us have to elevate, to build our lives, to trust in the things that we can do and leave us completely dependent upon the glorious grace, the matchless riches and the unchangeable truth that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen.